Well, if you went to Sunday school at all, when I say the name Joshua, there's probably one story that immediately comes to mind. Joshua and the battle of Jericho. In fact, you probably know the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. Come on, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And the... Nice! Wow! I didn't know you had it in you. That, that was awesome. That's, when we think about Joshua, that's what we think of. First story that comes to mind. It is the most famous story in the book of Joshua. And we're going to spend the next two weeks walking through that story. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Joshua chapter 5 this morning. Joshua chapter 5, we are in a series of messages that we are calling Promised Land. And in that series of messages, we are working off of this premise that the people of God are created to live in the promises of God. That God's blessings, his promises, that, that land of promise that he has to give to us is something that he wants us to enjoy and to live in and to realize in our everyday lives. That the people of God are called to live in the promises of God. And when we think about that story, we think about Joshua. <clears throat> when we think about that story... We think about walls. And over the course of the next two weeks, I want to challenge in a few ways some of your thoughts about that story. Because even though it's about Joshua, and even though it's about walls, at the end of the day, as we walk through this the next two weeks, we will see that it's more than just a Sunday school story. That it's a historical account of something that God did for his people in a powerful way. Now we always have to be careful, especially with with Old Testament stories, that when when we interpret them, when we read them, when we talk about them, that we don't make them into to fables or that we allegorize them in a way that, that takes them outside of the realm of, of, of actual, real, biblical, genuine interpretation. But I want to talk to you this morning about some principles that we see in this story that may help you as you think about your own life. Now, many of you are, are, are taking notes in some way or another. Maybe you're using the Bible app or maybe you're, you're using something on your tablet or your phone or a piece of paper, whatever it might be. I want to challenge you to think for a moment and then write something down. In these last few weeks, we've spoken very um, pointedly about the subject of victory. So take a moment and apply this to your own life. Where is it today, this moment, that you are looking for victory in your life? Over the course of this last week, we, we did our homework for our hearts, right? Do you remember that? Anybody read Psalm 139 this week? And that, Wow, all right. Every day, you get an A+, my friend, and you're on the front row. That's bonus points. That's awesome. So as we read God's Word, where, where, did, it, where did it take us? Where do you need victory in your life today? Is it in your work? Is it in your family? Is it in your money? Is it in school? Are you planning for the future or are you dealing with the past? Are you in some place where you're wrestling with fears or trying to find peace? Is it something in your relationships with your friends or coworkers? Is your marriage at a point where you're just looking for some kind of victory? Where is that that you're looking for victory? For the Israelites, it was a very practical, physical thing. I've got to get from one place into another. Because when I move to this new place, and when I set up camp, when I live in this new place, then I will have victory. Where is the place in your life where you're looking to find victory? You know that. Most likely there was something or maybe some things that popped in your mind when we thought about that. The interesting thing for the Israelites 
is, and we'll watch this. In fact, we'll talk about this very pointedly in the next month or so as we go through these stories. Every place they went, it was a process. It was a challenge. It was, it was work. In some places, it was literal battle for them to get from where they were to where the victory was because there were obstacles in the way. In Jericho, it was a, it was a wall. It was a massive wall. Next week, when we move further into the story, we'll talk more specifically about the physical size of this wall, about the practical battle that they faced in Jericho. But there was this obstacle that was in their way. So let's just, for for the sake of staying with the story, let's call it these walls that somehow maybe block you from victory. So if you know what the victory is you're looking for, you might want to jot that down on your notes. Just take a minute, maybe on top of your page or somewhere on there. Just, just write that down so it's in front of you. And then take a moment and say, what, what are the walls that can keep me from this victory? What are the obstacles that if I'm going to be victorious, these are the things that seem to be holding me back. It could be people. It could be resources. It could be the past. It could be your future. It could be sin could be that habit you can't seem to shake. It can be that attitude that keeps creeping up. It could be failure. It could be enemies. It could be challenges. What, what is the obstacle? What are, what are the walls that somehow seem to hold you back from victory? Because I don't, I don't want to spoil this for anybody, but I'm going to assume that at least for the majority, you, you know the story, right? That Joshua and the Israelites come up on this city that they need to overtake. It is surrounded by these massive walls. And inside are well-trained, fierce warriors. He knows what he's up against. And God says to him, Joshua, march around the city. And they march around it once a day for six days, seven times on the seventh day. And at the end of that seventh time, they give a shout. And what happens to the walls? We already sang it. They They come tumbling down. So that's the story. We know how it ends, but let's look at what we see in the middle here and figure out how does this apply to our lives? How does this fit into the place where today you're not only wanting to find victory, but also there seems to be some walls or some obstacles that may keep you from that thing. And I want to challenge you over the course of the next two weeks with some, and let's let's give it just a little title for what we'll talk about as we go through the story, some words of wisdom for walking around walls. Because we find ourselves in that place. You may be in that place right now. And if you're not right now, I hope you will be by the end of this message. That you'll be at a place where you can identify some of the walls in your life. And not only identify the walls, but take practical steps to move yourself, your family, your occupation, your future toward a place of victory. So let me share with you, we're going to look at six this morning, several more next week. But six words of wisdom for walking around walls. So let's just... Go through the story as we do. We'll stop. We'll we'll ponder some things and see what God might speak to our hearts. Joshua chapter 5 verse 13 is where the story begins. If you remember last week, they had to go back to basics. Circumcision, Passover, some things that had been neglected in their recent past that prepared their hearts to be ready for what God wanted to do. That's why we read through Psalm 139 this week to prepare our hearts for victory, to get ready and ask God to search us so that we would be in a place where he could bring victory to us. And now we come to Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? This is an interesting story because Joshua, most likely, whether he's got anyone with him or not, we don't know. It appears that maybe he's by himself. And he's surveying the scene. Before the battle starts, a brilliant military strategist 
takes a walk and looks at what's in front of him. How are we going to conquer Jericho? And in the process, it says he looks up. It implies that he's startled by this individual who's standing there with a sword. If you, if you were walking down the street, walk, walking your dog down the sidewalk, and you just looked up, and there's a man standing there with a sword, you'd be startled too, right? Joshua is ready for battle. Here's a warrior. So he asks him what seems to be a very logical question, but betrays something about what's going on in Joshua's heart. And I can guarantee you this. It betrays something that's going on in your heart as well. He says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? You're either for me or against me, right? You're either with me or you're not. And for a warrior, it is a question that makes all the sense in the world, but it betrays something inside of Joshua's heart and inside of ours too. Here's here's the first word of wisdom I'd give you if you're walking around walls today. Number one, it is not really about you. It is not really about you. The way that Joshua defined things immediately was this. You're either on my side or you're not. You're either for me or you're against me. You're either with me or you're in opposition to me. And that was his immediate gut check response. Because he's a leader, right? Because he had victory in mind. And that's what comes out of us so many times. In fact, if you push me or if I push you, we we don't fault him. We'd have the same kind of response. When I get startled or I get pushed, I do the same thing. Are you on my team or are you not on my team? Are you for me or are you against me? We evaluate so many things in that way. What does this mean for me? Are you with me or not? And at some point, though, we have to realize, especially in the battles that we face, it's really not about us. It's really not about us. I have this little speech that I do um, at a wedding rehearsal. And I've, I've done it so many times, it just, just kind of comes out without even trying. And before we start the rehearsal, I'll sit down with the family. And there's always that one family member who has, who's smarter than anyone else in the room. Do you know what I mean? They know exactly what the wedding should look like, even though they maybe have never been to a wedding before. Do you know what I mean? There's that person. And, and they'll, they'll make it a, a tormenting opportunity for the bride and groom if you don't help them. So I give this little speech and I talk about, hey, you know, here's how we're going to run this and here's how it goes. And I said, look, at the end of the day, this event is not about any of the rest of us in this room. It's just about the bride and groom. And honestly, at the end of the day, and I look at the groom and I say, it's just about the bride. Isn't that true? <laughs> it's all about her. He's just, he's just a necessary evil as a part of that day. So many times in life, we think it's all about us. We think we're the star of the show. And we lean into that. Here's what we see in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. It it calls it out. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We'll we'll get to this in the second thing. It'll make more sense as we unpack this, but, but hang on to this for a minute. It's really not about you. And if you pridefully look, especially at the challenges or the struggles or the obstacles in your life, as if they're a personal attack on you, it will put you in a place where you will be set up for destruction. Let me say it this way. Selfish evaluation leads to spiritual deprivation. If you view everything in your life through the lens of self, if everything you see is how does this affect me, how does this affect my cause, how does this affect what I want to do, then in the process, you're going to deprive yourself spiritually of what God wants to do in your life. Because there's a bigger picture than this. We'll see it in just a minute. 
Don't check out on this thought. There's a, there's a bigger picture. What did we say last week? When you're too full of yourself, you leave little room to be full of the Spirit. And Joshua gave a very natural response. I don't fault him in this. It just allowed the Holy Spirit to maybe identify something in my life as well. That my typical response is to say, are you for me or are you against me? Is this good for me or is this bad for me? How does this affect me? And that selfish evaluation will lead me to a place of spiritual deprivation. Because when I think it's about me, then every challenge becomes a battle. I take every attack personally. And so much of that comes from this root of pride. So let me encourage you with this. Victory is a very personal thing, but don't make it too personal. I want you to find victory in your life. But don't own that so much that it comes with a burden. This is key for us to recognize Because when it's not about me, then I can begin to look with objectivity at the things that God is really trying to do. So so register this, because the next part leads to this. Joshua sees this guy. He says, are you for me, or are you against me? And so let's go to verse uh, 14, and watch what happens next. Joshua chapter 5, verse 14. There's a man standing there. Joshua has given him two options, A or B. He takes door number three. Joshua 5, 14. Neither, he replied, But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come now. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Don't you love that response? Because Joshua says, I'm Joshua. And you're either with me or you're not. And the guy says, you ain't nothing. It's neither. I'm not here for you, Joshua. I'm here for God. I'm here to carry out God's task. That's my role. That's why I'm here. And do you see the light bulb go off over Joshua's head? Because what's his immediate response? He falls face down. And he says, oh, now I get it. It's not about me. And the the response of this person in verse 14, some people would say it's an angel. Some people would say it's an actual manifestation of Christ himself in an Old Testament form who comes and theologians differ on that we just know this it was a messenger straight from god his response highlights something else for us and 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 you might not like this and you might even want to kind of argue a little bit about this one but but grasp this with me second word of wisdom for walking around walls number two god is not on our side now this may seem strange to you because we sing songs about god being on our side I think that's true. We're not singing lies, but I want you to catch something. God is not on our side. Now, is he with us? Absolutely. Here's what scripture says. In fact, if you're wrestling with the challenge, write down some of these. Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So if we say that God is with us, that he fights for us, that he's beside us, that's true. Here's the problem. Sometimes when we say God is on our side, we make it sound as if he's on our payroll. And here's the truth. God is not on our side, but we are on his. Isn't that true? We have to recognize this. Joshua, I'm not here to fight for you. I'm here to tell you what God wants to do through you. I'm here to tell you what God wants to accomplish. 
I'm here to show you what God's plans are. And the truth is, God is not on our side, but we are on His. And doesn't that make it all the more reassuring? Because if I want God on my side, then I have to constantly persuade Him that my side is the right side. That I'm doing the right thing. But if I'll just get on board with what He's doing, if I'll be on His side, then I have the confidence to know that I'm with Him, that I work in His power, that He is right beside me. See, God's not simply around to accomplish your purposes. He's not simply up in heaven just waiting to see what I might dream up for Him. Even though oftentimes my prayers are, God, I wish you would do this. And God, I don't understand why it's this way. My life is not to accomplish my purposes, but to accomplish His. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1 To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and He will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked, for a day of disaster. So when we begin to think that we've got it figured out and that God is on our side and has to do our work, we're we're misunderstanding this whole truth. The truth is, when I face a challenge, I need to find out what is God's side and how do I get involved. And too many times we get disappointed because we think that something's wrong, that God's not working for us. When actually, maybe what we need to do is find a place where we line up with Him. Too many times we give up when we think that God is distant or that He's gone or that He doesn't care. Because we think that in some place, God needs to do what we want Him to do because we want Him on our side I don't think God picks sides. The only side He picks is the side of righteousness and holiness. His side, right? And it's up to us to follow His sovereign will and do what He wants. Now look, this is where it gets a little tricky because I'm going to guess that for at least every guy in the room, you know the moment when you're sitting in front of the television and your football team's playing. You ever prayed? Dear Lord, help Big Ben today to beat those Browns. God, we know that gold is the color of your streets in heaven. And so today we pray for the Steelers. Because, Father, we know they're your team. Amen. You can't tell me that there's not been a moment in the fourth quarter when you've prayed like that. For your team? You've done it. You've prayed that way. Isn't it silly? God, help my team to win. I don't know. I'm pretty sure God cares about this afternoon's game. But most games, he doesn't care. He cares about people. He cares about souls. He cares about his kingdom. And building his kingdom doesn't always look the way that Chad thinks it should look. He does his work. And so sometimes, as I'm walking around walls, I have to stop and remember, all right, God, this isn't my kingdom. It's not my battle. It's really not my victory. It's yours. I don't take that too literally, but understand what I'm saying today. God is not on your side. You need to get on his and be a part of what he's doing. Let's go back to our story. Joshua chapter 5, verse 14. Again, neither this messenger from God replies, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You see what Joshua does? 
he falls face down when he sees this messenger. Then, when he says, what am I to do? The messenger's response to him, his, his command to him, is to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. Who also got that command? Do you remember who? Moses, Joshua's predecessor. And this helps us to see again that God has chosen Joshua to finish the, the mission that Moses was called to. They're, they're connected. It affirmed God's call in Joshua's life. And what we see is very unique. Joshua did not get prideful because God was calling him. Instead, he humbled himself. Watch this. Here's a third word of wisdom if you're walking around walls. Our response to the divine should be one of reverence. When you're facing a challenge, don't forget who God is. Don't forget what he's done in your life. Because oftentimes, we just look at those walls by ourselves and we keep our face up looking at how big these things are. And it seems ominous and the task seems impossible. But if we will, like Joshua, humble ourselves before God, it puts us in a place where we look at him instead of looking at the walls. And here's just a truth that you'll find in your life. When we look to God instead of looking at walls, the walls don't seem so big. Is God bigger than the walls you face? Man, we'll watch it next week. He can cause them to come tumbling down by his divine power, by his divine ability. But if I'm just staring at the walls, all I see is how big they are. But when I realize who God is, when we encounter his divine power, it brings us to a point of reverence where we recognize who God is and that he's bigger than those walls that we face. And so once again, God is speaking to Joshua that before he does something amazing in their lives, they have to prepare themselves. Do you remember this? We talked about this two or three weeks ago, that someone holy is about to do something holy, so you must be holy. If we want God to do something amazing in our lives, then he calls us to consecration. He calls us to holiness in our lives. He calls us to prepare ourselves for that. This may be one of the fundamental places where this next week, you might need to spend some spiritual time in your own heart before God. This is why we went to Psalm 139. If someone holy wants to do something holy in your life, have you, have you taken time to ask God to help you to pursue His holiness? To maybe deal with some of the things in your life that, that separate you from Him, that challenge you in your walk with Him, that allow you to be open to what He wants to do in and through you. Let's go back to our story. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. And then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. This is such an interesting statement. Because if I'm Joshua and I'm standing there, I I picture him kind of, looking out over the horizon. And he's seeing Jericho off in the distance. And he's seeing the walls. And this guy says to him, I have given Jericho into your hands. And Joshua knows that he still sees walls and he still knows they're soldiers. I would say to him, yes, thank you. Now, where is it? Because you say you've given it to me, but I don't have it yet. You're making this promise to me. You're assuring me of something, but there's still an awful lot of work that has to be done here. How do I know you'll follow through on what you're saying? How do I know that you'll be good to your word? You're saying that I already have this, that you've 
already given this to me, but I don't have it yet. You're saying already, but not yet. I don't have it. What does that mean? And look, friends, this is a, a, a true principle of our Christian lives that I challenge you with. Number four, we already have what we don't have yet. If that sounds confusing, it's because it probably is. But we already have what we don't have yet. Watch what God asked Joshua to do. He says, Joshua, go out and march around the city. When they circled that city and recognized that the, the city of Jericho would have been a smaller piece of property than what our church sits on. So we, we kind of picture it like this maybe big sprawling metropolis. But if you go back, some theologians say maybe the whole, the whole space was only about four or five acres that that wall surrounded. Well, you've got, let's just say, several hundred thousand troops that Israel has at this time. They're, they're going to be able to circle that whole thing. And some of them will get back to camp before the rest of them have gone all the way around the, the city, right? So they go out there and they do this march. It's not a battle, it's just a march. Why? Because ceremonially, it communicated that this place was under their control. They were laying siege spiritually to that ground as they walked around it. And then they give a shout. That shout was, was almost a form of psychological warfare to say, look, we give a shout of victory. They didn't have any of that yet. They hadn't laid siege to the city. They had not conquered it. But there was a moment where they had to say, we believe that God has already given us this. So we're going to live as if he has already made us victorious. Now, the truth is we already have what we don't have yet. It's this theological idea that you'll sometimes hear communicated as already but not yet. We know that when we get to heaven, we have perfect bodies and we will be completely healed. We rest in that. We already have that promise. But I still get a stiff neck sometimes, don't I? I already have it, but not yet. I know that in heaven, I'll live in a world where there is no sin. But today, I have to live with you. And we're sinners, right? And so I already have that promise, but not yet. And we live in that way. We live in that weird tension. And that's where faith becomes so important. That we believe that God has given us something that we've not seen yet. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 30 speaks of this very story. Hebrews 11 verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. It wasn't a shout. It wasn't an earthquake. I don't know exactly how God did it. I don't know if it, maybe there was a flaw in the walls or God just sneezed. I don't know how the walls came down. I just know this. The Bible tells us it was by faith. What does faith do? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith gives us the basis for hope. I can't see it yet, God. But your word promises me that it's there. I don't have the victory yet in this, God, but I know that your word says that I can. God, I don't understand how this is all going to work out, but I know that I believe in you, and so because of my faith, I place my hope in you. Faith gives us this basis for hope, and I, I would tell you that sometimes we have to appropriate in real life the things that we've not yet received in real life. Let me give it to you this way. The Bible says that God will give to us a peace that passes all understanding. And I might not feel that in this moment, but I have to choose to believe that he can. Because if all I'm doing is filling my mind with fear, he doesn't have any room to give me peace. Does that make sense? So I have to say, God, I believe by faith that you can bring me peace. 
God, I believe that you can give me the resource that I need. God, I don't see it right now, but I believe that you can. And that plays in everyday life, and that plays to what we look for in the future. We live our lives not just for today. We live our lives in light of eternity. Isn't that true? And so faith calls us to live today like we know what's going to happen tomorrow. Faith calls us to live today like we know what's going to happen tomorrow. Let me make it very clear to you. The Bible tells us that one day we're all going to die or the rapture's going to happen. And that means at some point you're going to stand before God and you're going to answer for your life to Him. And if that's true, then I should live today as if I know that tomorrow I may have to stand before God. Does that make sense? So I already have this, even though it's not yet here. Now God says to Joshua, you already have victory, but you don't have it yet. Most clearly, we see this in the area of, of death. And I know some of you, even in the last year, you've, you've felt the sting of death in your family, in your home, in your life. What does the Bible say about that? Because death seems to be such an end. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. Listen to the language that's here. Paul writes, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, when we die and take on a heavenly nature, he's speaking of here, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in what? <laughs> victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, listen to this, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've, I've been with folks when they've breathed their last breath. I've been in the room as their earthly lives have ended. And it doesn't always look victorious. Except I know something that those who just see it through the naked eye can't see or understand. That their life didn't end. It just started. Because they hung on to something that God had already given them that they did not have. And so Paul says to people, and I want you to catch this, because this is critical for some of you, because you're walking around walls and you feel like you're getting nowhere. You feel like you're going around in circles and you feel like nothing's happening. And God has said, look, I have promised you victory. He didn't say it would happen tomorrow. He didn't even say it would happen in this life. He just said, if you trust him, there's victory that's going to come. You already have it, even though not yet. It's coming. He's paid for it. He ordered it. He's asking something better than Amazon to bring it. He's got drones that they can't even dream of. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he promises he will. So Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now watch this. If that's what we hold on to, that he's already given it to us, but not yet, what do we do next? The very next verse. Paul says, thanks be to God who's given us the victory. Verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Did you hear what he said? If you're walking around a wall, do not give up. Don't stop. Don't think he's failed you. Don't think he gave up. If something didn't go the way you thought it should or you didn't get what you thought was fair or you lost something that you were trying to hold on to 
or maybe the most important person or thing or whatever in your life is gone, that doesn't mean that God's gone and that doesn't mean that he doesn't have that victory there. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory and if he does give us the victory, stand firm, which in Joshua terms means keep walking around that wall. Keep doing what God has called you to do. Let's go back to our story. Joshua chapter 5, verse 14. Joshua chapter 5, verse 14. We've already, we've already read this, but watch what happens here. Joshua says, are you for me? Are you against me? <clears throat> and the commander of the Lord's army says, neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Watch Joshua's response. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Why is Joshua out there? The Bible doesn't tell us. Here's my assumption. He's a brilliant military strategist who's out there trying to figure out how are we going to do this? It's his job. He's the leader. And then this stranger shows up and says, I'm here from God. Joshua's first response, what message do you have for me? What is it that you want me to hear? So what's his response? Go back to it. Very teachable spirit by Joshua, right? Joshua chapter 6, verse 3. The commander of the Lord's army says, march around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets and ram horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and everyone straight in. He gives Joshua a way to victory. This was not the right way to victory for a brilliant military strategist. If you were going to be in the conquest of a walled city. There were ancient writings that told you how to do it, a manual for warfare. If you were going to conquer a walled city, there were five ways. Number one, go under or go over the wall using ladders, ramps, etc. Any of you ever tried that? Okay, you need to get out a little bit. Number two, you could dig a tunnel under the wall. Number three, you could smash a hole through the wall. Number four, you lay siege to the city until the city is starved into submission. Sometimes the 1130 service feels that way. Number five, <laughs> number five, you can get into a walled city by some sort of subterfuge, like the use of a wooden horse, you know, the Trojan horse, that whole idea. Those are the five ways in ancient warfare that you take a walled city. Number six was not take a walk. This made no sense. It wasn't in the manual. Why would he do it? He did it because God told him to. Fifth word of wisdom if you're walking around walls. Number five, God's way is better than a good way. All five of those were good ways to take a city. You got to take a city with a wall? Ladders are helpful. Shovels are good. Wrecking balls are awesome. Those are good ways. Who has the best way? God does. God's way is always better than a good way. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8 is a good reminder. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Here's a couple of reminders I got this week. Psalm 139 verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Psalm 139 verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Scripture makes it very clear that if you consider this, God's ways are better than a good way. Now this hits our lives in a lot of different ways because we live in a, in a culture that, qu that is quick to tell us man's wisdom. 
and to say what the good ways are. Let me just hit this in a very practical sense. I think this is, uh, this is very interesting. I read an article this week. In fact, a couple of people pointed it my way. The title of the article is, is Sexual Atheism. It was in Charisma Magazine uh, online just this last week. And the concept comes out of this. There was a survey, a study that was conducted by Christian Mingle. That's the Christian online dating site that's targeted towards Christian singles. Bible-believing Evangelical Christian singles. That's the idea of this. Christian Mingle did a survey of singles between the ages of 18 and 59 that were asked, would you have sex before marriage? Now the Bible makes it very clear, unequivocally says that sex before marriage is a sin. That it is outside of God's best and God's plan for those who follow him. So the survey to those using Christian Mingle is, would you have sex before marriage? The response, 63% of the single Christian respondents indicated yes. So this is where the title comes from. The article is titled Sexual Atheism. That there are people who believe in God, but when it comes to the area of sexuality in their lives, they act as if there is no God. Sexual atheism. They dismiss God in an area of their life where they find him inconvenient or uncomfortable or where the culture says, hey, there's, there's a better way. You, you can get around this. And we see it not just in the area of our sexuality, we see it in the area of our finances, and we see it in the area of our relationships, we see it in the area of our character and our integrity, we see it in the way that we process life, and oftentimes we're more influenced by media and by others than we are by God's word and by allowing his spirit to work in our lives. Because someone says, hey, this is a good way, and we don't stop to say, but is it God's way? And sometimes we find ourselves circling walls frustrated because we try to move our life forward in a good way and we've never bothered to inquire of the Lord to ask the Holy Spirit if it's good or to see what his word has to say. So what Joshua points out to us here that even though it didn't make sense militarily, it was God's plan for taking down the city and God's way is better than a good way. Now you may be quick to say, I am not a sexual atheist. But I wonder where you might be. Or I wonder where God by his Holy Spirit has just been pushing you a little. Do you know that nudge that the Spirit gives us? And says be obedient in this area. Or take this step. His word is speaking to you. Or his spirit is speaking to you. And the challenge is are you willing to do things God's way? If you're circling a wall, consider this. Victory comes from following God's game plan, not our own. Victory comes from following God's game plan and not our own. It would have been easy for Joshua to have said to that messenger, hey, thanks, but your idea is dumb. It doesn't work. It's not going to do anything. In fact, it only puts us in harm's way. But God said, my way is better than a good way, and then a good way. You might say forgiveness in this situation does not seem to make sense. Following biblical principles with my finances is, is irresponsible. You might say that having that conversation or giving that time doesn't seem to be wise, but if God's speaking to your heart, recognize this that God's ways are better than a good way. One last thing, let's go back to our story before we uh, push the pause button on it for this week. Joshua chapter six, verse six. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city, 
with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. Two times in this story, there's a, there's a point at which there's an exclamation point. And when there's an exclamation point, you know that it's something that's being said forcefully, and you know that it's something that is important for them. It's a command for them to hear. We'll look at the, the second time next week. This week, what did Joshua say? He said to them, advance. It's time to move. It's time to be busy walking around those walls. It's time for you to leave the camp where you are and go and do what God has called you to do. And here's the truth. This is key. They could have sat there and shouted. They could have thought about walking around the wall. They really most likely were not that far from Jericho. But the sixth thing we learn is this. There is no miracle without movement. If you want to see God bring victory to your life, if there are obstacles, if there are walls that you would like for him to deal with, then it is a team sport. We work with him. And there is no miracle without movement. At some point, the Spirit whispers to your heart or God shouts to you through his word, advance, get out of the camp and move forward to victory. And this is such a, this is such a funny balance, isn't it? Because God was calling them to move around the walls. But if I was one of those soldiers, do you know how frustrating it would have been on Monday to wake up, put on my gear, go for a walk, and then go back home and watch Netflix for the rest of the day? What do you mean? We'll circle it once and then we go home? Yeah, we'll do that and then we'll do it again tomorrow. Hey, Joshua, I'd, I'd really like to knock down a wall. Yeah, I know, me too. Have a good day. We'll see you tomorrow morning. And they did it for six days. It seemed for some of them probably pointless. Except God had said, you keep, you keep this thing moving. You stay faithful. You do what I've called you to do. And in my perfect timing, I'll work it out. There's this funny balance between trusting God to do his work and being faithful to do what he calls us to do. And there is no miracle without movement. At some point, we have to move towards an obedience what God has called us to do. Now, your malls might not come down right away. That's why the Bible tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. It's too bad that was a New Testament verse. They probably could have used it when Joshua was around, right? Hey, boys, walk by faith, not by sight. Don't look at what you're seeing. Look at what God is doing. Look at what he's working out in you. Look at what he's preparing in you. Look at how he's moving along. Don't be like the, the, the generation before you, Joshua, who was willing to stay put and give up on the promise. Some of you have been in that place in your life in the past, you were willing to stay put. You were willing to let the promise slip through your fingers, but not today. Today you say, no, I, I'm not anymore. I want that victory. Now, I can't, I can't quantify that for you. That's why we wrote it down at the beginning. What's the victory you're looking for? What's the obstacle in the way? And I would challenge you, what's, what's God saying is next for you? If you're going to march around that wall, what is the movement that you need to make to prepare yourself for God to do some kind of miracle? But we don't dare miss this opportunity. And here's the truth. In the process, don't focus on the walls. Focus on what God has asked you to do and what he can make happen if with your movement he brings a miracle. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Here's my challenge to you. Stop fixating on the walls and start fixing your eyes on Jesus. Because for some of us, for, for some of you, 
It's been all about the walls and how they affect you. And God, why aren't you here to help me? But remember, it's not about you. And God's not on your payroll. He's not on your side. You need to be on his. Which brings us to a humble moment where we're willing to say, God, I, I face down. Sandals off. Lord, I reverence you. And I realize that even though I don't have the victory yet, you've promised to give it to me. So I will choose to do things your way, not just a good way, but God's way. And Lord, as I move forward in obedience, it may mean stepping away from something. It may mean stepping into something. It may mean changing a thought habit. It may mean changing a practice. It may mean opening yourself up to being used to the Holy Spirit. I, I don't know where that victory is in your life, but if you will make movement toward it, he asks us to do that, and he says, I've already given you victory. And that movement can move us towards a, v, a, 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 a miracle. So here's just two, two quick thoughts. One is this, for some of us, we're a whole lot quicker to just sit here and look at what we don't have, to look at how big the walls are, to look at how tough this is. And for some of you, this is, have you ever had God just give you a little knock on the back of the head with a baseball bat? I've had it. And God may be speaking to some of your hearts today. Look, there is no victory with a victim mentality. You'll never find victory with a victim mentality. Instead, we don't fixate on the wall. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And we move forward. So Joshua says to the Israelites, Priests, call the brass section up. Pull out the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to go for a walk. Army, advance. We're going to move this thing forward. And we're going to walk around this wall. There's no victory yet, but we've been promised it. So let's start moving. Here's my challenge to you. These next seven days, before next Sunday, when we get to the point in this story where God does something unbelievable, mind-blowing, before we get to that point, what's God speaking to you about the walk you're taking around the walls in your life? What does that mean? What, is, what does that look like? How are you going to make movement this week? For some of you, it may be a very deliberate matter of prayer. Where you need to put yourself in some place where you maybe more aggressively or strategically are praying about something than you ever have. And you know what it may mean? It may mean you physically taking a walk. Now, I don't think if you walk around something this week, God's going to do some kind of magic. But I do think it positions your heart now look, if there's a person in your life who you have an issue with, don't do this once a day for six days. Just don't walk around them. That's creepy, all right? Don't circle their cubicle or picket their car in the parking lot. Don't do that. But take this situation to the Lord in prayer. Ask for His help. For some of you, this may be a week that with your practices or with your thoughts... You, you may need to show God that you're serious about having someone holy do something holy in your life. You may need to ask God to change your perspective. It may be the right time for you to invite someone to be with you in church next Sunday because you know the victory that they need in their life. And you're going to take these next seven days 
And you're going to march around them spiritually in prayer and believe that God's going to bring victory to them. I, I don't know what it might be. I just know this, that this story reminds us that God is in the business of bringing his people victory. Isn't that true? And if you're circling a wall today, I want to pray for you that in this next week, God would do something powerful as you deliberately start putting some movement to the miracle that you need. So will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? And one, one quick thought, one quick question. Maybe you're here today and more than anything else, what you need is not just a miracle, you need your life to be changed. And you would clearly say that today, you know that what you need is to be right with God. And as we've talked about God's love for you, and as we've talked about Jesus You're reminded today that Jesus died on a cross for your sins, that he gave his life so that your sins could be forgiven. And the most important thing that you could do today would be to begin a relationship with him. And if you're here today and you would say, I can't do it on my own anymore, and today I need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, would you pray for me today? Would you raise your hand? Is there anybody here? And you would just say, yeah, thanks, thanks. You just say, look, today I can't do it on my own anymore. God, I need to begin or begin again that relationship with you. Is there anybody else? I want to pray with you today. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we we come to you this morning. Lord, first I, I join my faith with those who are here today and say that today they need to begin again that relationship with you. They need you as their Lord and Savior. Father, would you in this very moment just let them know your grace and your peace that as they surrender their lives to you, Lord, would you help them to know and to see your love and your power in their life. And Father, As we go into this next week, Lord, for some of us, there's some movement that needs to start to begin circling some walls in our life, Father, so that you can do a miracle that will change things, that will bring victory. And so, Lord, today we offer ourselves to you and we look forward to, in this this partnership of trust in you, God, the victory that you can bring. So now, Lord, as we go from here, We ask that you'd go with us. Send us out with your special favor and your wonderful peace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.